Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Puka and welcome to the Livestream Symposium. As you know, this channel is your place to learn everything <laughs> esoteric, occult, pagan and so on from an academic point of view. However, one of the uh, aims of this channel is to bridge the gap between academia and the community of practitioners. And so I started a series where uh, I also interview practitioners because I started out and uh, in the beginning of my YouTube channel by interviewing academics only. And now I'm also starting to interview practitioners because I find their views fascinating as um, a pagan studies scholar and as an anthropologist. So um, before we crack on with our special guest, uh, please do know that this is a crowdfunded project. And if you want to help keep it going, please consider supporting my work with a one-off PayPal donation by joining memberships or my inner symposium on Patreon. And like, share, subscribe, and do all the good stuff. <laughs> so our special guest today is Selena Fox, Wiccan priestess, and uh, let me bring her on. Hi, Selena. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be an Angela Symposium. Um, I, you know, you caught my attention because of, you know, your work on nature, spirituality and um, on paganism. So uh, would you like to introduce yourself for, for my audience? Uh, my name is Selena Fox and I am the senior minister and high priestess of Circle Sanctuary which I founded back in 1974 and which serves pagans of many paths, not only across the USA, but around the world. I'm really excited to be here and to continue the evolution of pagan studies, which is <laughs> something that academically, I also have had some connections with over the years. Uh, when I got my master's at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin in counseling psychology, I thought it was really important to document pagans as a cultural population with its own needs regarding mental health support and treatment and my When Goddess is God, Pagans Recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous was the first to get paganism entered into addiction treatment literature. And I'm really thankful that since that time, other people have built on that work. Um, in addition to doing some pagan studies work, I still speak from time to time to various, um, at various institutions, at conferences that are academic, as well as do a lot of speaking in person and online at pagan festivals and webinars and gatherings. I also run Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve. It's a 200 acre nature sanctuary located in Southwestern Wisconsin, USA. That began in 1983, and in 1995, we began Circle Cemetery, which is one of the first green cemeteries in North America and the first USA national pagan cemetery. 
So we do full body natural burials as well as have an area where cremated remains are buried and scattered. And we have sacred sites on all 200 acres and our stone circle, which has um, been established when we got the land is also part of our cemetery now. Oh, that's great. And also, I'd like to remind everybody that the uh, links to uh, Selena's channels and social media are all in the info box. So do check them out. <laughs> and uh, apparently, we have somebody from Pagan Pride Seattle <laughs> saying that uh, we have a great guest today. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Mark, for, uh, you know, your support and saying that uh, we're doing great work here. Uh, so, Selena, one of the things that I was interested in is that I'm at the moment in the process of co-editing a book for Equinox uh, with uh, Susan Owen on uh, paganism. And one of the things that we were discussing the other, the other day since we're working on the book is how the term paganism has changed over the years. And it started out as something that was particularly related to nature. And, uh, you know, paganism was described for the longest time as a nature-worshipping religion or a nature-centered religion. Now, however, there are uh, pagans, especially among the younger generations that describe themselves as pagans, challenging the aspect of nature worshipping, uh, because perhaps there are uh, other types of magic practitioners, um, other types of uh, polytheists who identify as pagans, but are not particularly focused on the idea of nature, for instance, Thelemites. Um, so I was wondering, what role do you think nature plays in in paganism and do you think because you said that you also work with pagans uh, across traditions so i was wondering how central of a concept is nature worshiping and what role does nature play in paganism when i use the word nature i capitalize it as my great-grandfather did. He was a horticulturalist and wrote a book on water gardening that was published in 1905, his name Peter Bissett. And I honor nature as not only the environment here on planet Earth, but as a term that incorporates all that is. So I do think there has been more diversity in recent years regarding how nature is conceptualized. I see nature as something that is intertwined not only with a variety of different paths of contemporary paganism, but actually links us to the old paganism of ancient times. Whether someone is actually working for the environment, seeking to be outdoors is part of ritual experience. We are all part of nature. Nature is part of ourselves. I reject the concept that humans are separate from nature. And I think part of the growth of contemporary paganism has come as a result of people really wanting to have a spiritual practice, a re religious practice, and or for those who are humanistic, or 
free thinkers or agnostic or atheists in their worldview to have something that's environmentally relevant. There is certainly a need here on planet Earth to have humankind become more aware of our interconnectedness, not only with other humans, with creatures and plants, ecosystems, but the larger realm of nature. So to me, it is essential um, as part of human life to tune into nature when we're engaged in some form of spiritual practice, being able to not only work with nature symbolically, such as working with the elemental tools, flame for fire, a chalice of water for water, a platter or a dish of salt for earth, incense for air, a crystal or some other um, symbol for spirit. We can work with elemental tools, but I find that we can deepen our magical practice, our pagan practice by actually being in outdoor locations where we shift from being more focused from our human framework into the environment, moving from egocentric to ecocentric. There are many people who are practicing forms of magic that are working with elemental tools. They may call archangels of the directions or of the elements and might not consider themselves nature religion practitioners. I would disagree. If you have water as part of your ritual, whether it's symbolic or you're actually um, aspurging with it, you're tapping into an elemental and I think it's really important for those of us who are pagan to appreciate our differences, but also find ways to collaborate for a healthier planet. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting answer. You know, the idea that nature is everything. So in a way, um, yeah, that's... Um, that's quite interesting. And you said that you have a master's in counseling psychology, something that I uh, I knew I knew already. And I was wondering how uh, is that helping now in your in your practice as a as a high priestess? Do do you link you know that spirit. knowledge? Mm. Yes, I've been doing counseling and psychotherapy since my undergraduate days. Of course, there was supervision back then and my graduate school days the first time. So I attended the College of William and Mary from 1967 to 1971 and focused on psychology as my major. And as an undergraduate, I started working in a practical way, doing counseling with people. I not only worked in what some people would call more traditional forms of psychology counseling, but I started reading Tarot back then. In fact, the Vietnam War was raging in 
the world at that time. And the first row reading I did for someone, uh, actually, I, I got some cards that led me to interpret that, that he was going to get drafted. And indeed, when the numbers were drawn, he was drafted, ended up going to Canada, actually, to uh, escape the draft. I, I have done counseling in a spiritual way as well as in a secular way um, throughout my whole career. In graduate school, I had limited choices where I could study because of my gender. I went to Rutgers University when it was an all-male institution and was one of the first women to break the gender barrier. They started letting women come in in 1971 um, in the graduate school. Well, I'm there and I wanted to study a field which is now called psychoneuroimmunology, looking at the mind-body-spirit connection to really take a look at intuition from a psychological perspective. Well, you let women into an academic institution and they really upend some things. I'm happy to say that that institution now has women fully participating. However, um, I realized it was a big enough stretch to break the gender barrier, but there was resistance to me studying ESP, parapsychology, consciousness studies. Uh, that I knew was going to be another battle. So I left and I went directly into a PhD program because I was an honors student. And then I left academia for a time. And when I moved to Wisconsin in the center or central part of the USA, I started taking special classes in various forms of psychology and other topics. I learned the I Ching from a classical Chinese professor who not only taught about this 5,000-year-old oracle, but taught the ritual for consulting it with yarrow stalks. So my education has continued over time. I decided to go back to graduate school in the 90s when I thought that there might be more understanding for the field that I really wanted to study, to really go into consciousness studies and to apply that in clinical settings and became the first graduate student to go into a private mental health hospital for my practicum. And there I was able to convince the administration to let me do nature therapy with the patients. I got to take them outside of this lockdown facility as part of treatment. And I can tell you from firsthand experience in, at that time that it actually made a difference, even for people that were severely mentally ill. I had a clinic practice for a time in the 90s, but my work with Circle Sanctuary was continuing to grow and expand. And I decided to come back and just focus on spiritual counseling and psychotherapy, which I've been doing ever since. 
So I have a variety of clients. Some of them are pagan, some of them are not. All of them are really drawn to me and the work that I do because I not only work with cognitive processes, what's the self-talk that's going on in our consciousness, but we do ritual. We do guided imagery work. I have nature communion as part of treatment if it's appropriate for the client that I'm working with. So my work with nature continues not only on a personal level as part of spiritual practice, but also as part of my therapeutic work with clients and in group settings. And it's also part of the teaching I do in terms of workshops and rituals at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve and in other parts of the world. Mm. And I was wondering, could you elaborate a bit more on the um, on the practices, the main practices that you that you do to reconnect with nature? You mentioned uh, nature communion and a few others. Uh, would you mind explaining how they work in in practice? I think something that everyone can do is develop a more intentional and special relationship with their particular place where they are living, connecting with the spirit of place. I happen to live in a forest and I'm in the middle of an oak forest as I come to you via satellite internet and one of the things that I do every day as part of Nature Communion is to go and face the east and honor the rising sun. I honor each of the sacred directions. The tradition that I was first trained in, in paganism, starts with the north and goes clockwise. And I've developed a form of paganism called circle craft where we link earth with north, air with east, fire with south, water with west, spirit in center, planet beneath, cosmos above, and connecting with the sphere, this sacred sphere and the sacred circle all around. So as part of my own spiritual practice of nature communion, in addition to going out and raising my hands up and greeting the rising sun, I also happen to have a lot, a lot of work with the goddess Bridget, who is linked with the goddess of dawn in a number of traditions, not only pagan traditions, but in Christian traditions, the sun and dawn. I face each of the directions and honor the direction, the associated element, and deepen my resonance with each of them. So I face the north, the east, the south, the west, the land in place where I'm at, below, the heavens above, the center where all of that comes together, and then around, and spirit within us and spirit around us. Another favorite practice that I have is to go on a walk in nature, a contemplative walk, where I experience myself as part of the natural environment, not as somebody 
who is on a theater stage with nature imagery as a backdrop. I like sitting in different places. I have certain rocks that I like to go and sit on. There are certain trees that I go and spend time with. And when I teach people about nature communion, in addition to these basic practices, I sometimes will do a deeper dive in terms of a particular elemental form. We have at Circle Sanctuary Nature Preserve a stream that flows through all 200 acres and having established a nature preserve and not only working with mystical things, but with science, we have a number of scientists that are part of our community and some of them worked for the Department of Natural Resources and we were able to name our stream. It hadn't been on a map. It was a small stream, but it connects with what is now known as the West Blue Mounds Creek watershed, eventually goes down the Wisconsin River into the Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico and into the Atlantic. And one of the wonderful things was being able to name that stream. Well, I have called it the stream of consciousness. Thank you, Williams James of Psychology Time. And, uh, and so, yes, we have our stream <laughs> as the stream of consciousness. And at times, I will take a group of people either to our Bridget Spring, which is one of the places that water just comes from the ground. And as with other people who draw some inspiration from Celtic um, antiquity, it's a gateway to the underworld. We will go there and do a meditation on the bubbling up of the water. We have our own version of the Clutey Well custom where people take strips of cloth and tie them on trees. Sometimes they're called rag trees as a way of doing a prayer ribbon or a prayer cloth um, for healing. So we've adapted those practices. When we're at the stream itself, I've had people take small pebbles and connect with the pebble, energize it with a wish that they wish to send out into the universe or when people need to do some cleansing work. They may work with a pebble or they might work with some biodegradable like flower petals or some herbs and cast it into the stream as a form of work for healing. Uh, there are so many ways to be able to commune with nature as part of personal practice and group practice. We are mostly a hardwood forest. We have a variety of types of oaks. I'm partial to oaks on my father's 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 side back into the Middle Ages. Our family took on the symbol of a oak tree that had been cut down and springing green again with the Latin motto. It had some Norman roots, but we're using um, Latin rather than French for that family line. Reverisket, it grows green again and again. So early on in my priestess life, I have used this old family symbol passed down through my family as a representation of what I think is happening with contemporary paganism. 
after more than 1,600 years of bad PR and oppression, more pagans are rising up and growing green again. And indeed, we not only need to flourish as a people with our various traditions and practices, but the planet itself needs that greening again energy. We need to work together to mitigate climate change and to take greater responsibility for our footprint, our part in environmental health and well-being and healing. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you, Hank, for uh, he's thanking me and you as well, uh, Selena. Uh, thank you, Hank. Um, yeah, I think that these practices are fascinating. And while you were talking, uh, I guess, um, something that I was thinking about is that the way you describe nature is something that is all encompassing. And uh, my perception from uh, what you from what you said, of what it means to connect with nature is to connect with um, something that goes beyond ourselves. Is that correct? Yes. And I know that some people like to refer to contemporary paganism as earth religion. I honor that. I've contributed to an anthology um, which comes out of a Unitarian Universalist Association press called Skinner House. So there is a voices of paganism and earth-centered spirituality. So I celebrate my uh, the earth is my home in this incarnation. Would I like to go off planet if they can actually um, start making it more affordable for people to venture off planet? I've always been fascinated with the stars, but I call it nature spirituality and nature religion because it's more than connecting with sacred forces embodied on planet earth. For me, it's the cosmos as well. So for me, having studied different paths of paganism, and actually I was uh, the first group, regular group I was um, helping to do priestess work with was a ceremonial magical lodge. Now, people in that lodge might not have called themselves nature religion practitioners. However, with our work drawn primarily from the Golden Dawn, but some other systems, we were working with the elements and we were drawing inspiration from a variety of hermetic traditions, including ancient Egyptian paganism. Um, we honored the divine through our connection with the cat goddess Bast, or some people call her Bastet. And as a result of my work within the ceremonial magical traditions, I deepened my understanding about varieties of paganism as well as magical practice. So I think it's really important as we think about nature and ways that we're part of to make space in our lives in addition to being on the screen, and I give thanks for the technology here, but get off the screen and into the green. I think we need to spend more time to balance our screen time, our time in the digital age, and really go old school. Get out, learn the name of plants, learn 
the life cycles of the trees in your environment, attuned to weather patterns, find ways of experiencing oneself as part of that greater whole. You actually, I think you read my mind because <laughs> I was about to ask about technology. Uh, partly because this is part of a research project that I will be working on, uh, but also linked to what you said earlier on, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, if somebody, uh, when you said uh, people that don't, con don't consider themselves nature worshipping or nature centered, but they still work with what is around us, since everything is nature, then you are also working with nature. So connecting to that point and to the concept of technology, what makes a tree more able to allow us to commune with nature than something that is technological? I mean, if everything is part of nature, what allows a tree and a forest to be more uh, conducive to that sense of connectedness compared to uh, technological things or um, human-made things? I think part of that, and I've been embracing technology started, you know, as it started emerging and actually um, when I was five years old, I began my media journey. So for me, media is a tool that humans can use for communication. But what we see on the screen is just part of the reality. And when we are actually in a forest, we're in an ecosystem. And yes, yeah, so I carry my phone um, with its video capabilities and its camera um, capabilities with me on some of my nature walks. And at times, I have seen beautiful images. Actually, I uh, did professional psychology as part of my career after I left graduate school the first time and moved to Madison, Wisconsin. I actually went into the arts for a time and became a professional commercial artist and photographer. And so I, I see photos of trees as something that can really help us connect but it's different than when you actually are physically with a living entity, with its own consciousness. I have the experience and the perspective that trees have spirits. Um, we can find ways to interact with them, to have friendships with them, to attune to them, to get guidance from them. And it's important, I think, to develop a holistic perspective on not only for personal identity, but for ourselves being in the world to not only find good ways to be in harmony with other humans, but the rest of the natural world here on the earth and beyond. And there's no real substitute for that than to actually go out into green spaces. I've had nature mystical experiences since I was very young. And I, um, that's not why I go out into nature to, to bliss out in a mystical trance, though it does happen. It's something that feeds my soul. And I think a lot of people 
feel drawn to nature, regardless of whether they have a religion or a spirituality or even a philosophy or worldview that they name. I think part of the reason there has been such a growth in interest in natural vacations, going into wild places, is to have the experience to shift from human-centric um, environments into one where humans are a minority. When you think about an anthill, well, they've created their own habitat out in nature. And ants have um, all sorts of um, tunnels and whatever, and they've mounted it up. Well, okay, if you're an ant, you can stay in the mound, I suppose, but there's a whole world out there. I think sometimes when people spend time, whether it's in a city or a suburb or a town, or even constantly on screens that are really human dominated, they are missing the opportunity to really be in touch with some deeper abilities and ways of understanding that come when we immerse ourselves in natural environments. When I started um, practicing the craft, I found that my form of Wiccan expression had a real shamanic, and I'm using that term in a multicultural sense rather than in a very specific sense when it was that term in English was first applied to practitioners of magical ways in, in parts of Siberia. Um, so when I talk about shamanism, working with the lower world, the middle world, the upper world, I see that that is also something that goes across a number of traditions, the idea of journeying into other dimensions. I see that is also part of connecting with the natural world in some powerful ways. So whether you choose to meditate at a holy well or a sacred spring and journey into the underworld that way, or you are going to do some sky gazing, the physical um, cosmos above us, uh, or we spend our time here in the middle world connecting with parks and conservancies and other wild places, I really think that we can develop a better understanding of that larger environment of which we're part as well as ourselves, who mm -hmm. we are as individuals. Yeah, thank you for that. So um, if I'm understanding you correctly, the difference between interacting with technology and interacting with the natural world is that the experience of the natural world is more holistic, whereas the experience of that we get through technology is more like a flattened experience. It's not. Um... It, it gives you, yeah, it gives you a glimpse. So um, I've had to do ceremonies, rites of passage for people in a variety of different locations. And sometimes during the pandemic, I had to do some crossing over ceremonies for people in their final moments of life on a screen. I had elemental tools present with me and I do, I work with those elements as part 
of me doing a send off for someone who's dying. And so I will hold up a dish of salt and blessings on your body and giving thanks to it in your life now passing, taking up some incense, blessings on your mind and your life now passing, taking up a candle flame, blessing on your will in your life now passing, taking up water, blessings on your emotions on your life now passing, taking up a crystal, blessing on your soul as you journey into the other world, Tirnanog, heaven, <laughs> um, the summer land, whatever it's called according to the person who's crossing over. And I have found that while it's not the same as doing a crossing over or a funeral where I actually am in an environment where the wind is blowing, the sun, a representation of fire is shining with earth beneath our feet, um, with the breath that we have also connecting us with wind um, and with water, moisture in the air, our bodies, or there might be a, a pond or a lake nearby. It's a more full experience when you're actually working with the elements in their pure form, but we can work with them in our practices. I know that I've encountered some people from different traditions who say, I'm not a nature religion, but yet they're working with old gods and goddesses that have as part of their own history through time connected with dimensions of nature. So Thor of the oak and of thunder, for example. And I, I think some of it's semantics and how people choose to self-identify and what group and what peer group they're part of. But I actually see that the elementals, um, which are represented in the five-pointed star encircled as something that links old paganism, ancient paganism with contemporary paganism. The ancient Greeks um, had the five-pointed star, the pentagram encircled as something rooted in the Pythagorean mystery traditions. So for myself, who entered paganism actually through my study of the classics, I was a psych major as an undergraduate, but I've loved the classics, ancient Greek, ancient Roman cultures and ways of being. I didn't embrace everything, obviously, those cultures had as part of their ways of being, but some of the philosophy continues to be with me today. So I think many people are pagan practitioners and working with nature symbols, nature divinities, nature forces, but just not wanting to call it nature. That's okay. There's a lot of diversity. And one of the things about nature, it's diverse. It's not a monoculture. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, thank you, Jeanette. She's thanking us both for all we do for paganism. And I also noted a couple of comments here. Um, here, Carl says, no picture of the ocean or Grand Canyon can ever do them justice, for example. You can only experience it, not watch it. 
I uh, will totally agree with that. I've been to both places. In fact, uh, I haven't been able to go to the ocean for three years <laughs> due to the pandemic, although I'm hoping I will get to do that soon. But one of my loves, I live in the center of the USA. We have lakes and streams and springs and other forms of water. But I can just say, having spent um, many of my vacation days out in an ocean environment, my family has had a, a place on the Atlantic Ocean for many, many years, for over 50 years, and that's where I vacation. Having the experience of going into the ocean and feeling its power, the waves, the energies, and I'm also very aligned to what I call Mother Ocean and the full moon. So I would time my trips to be out at the ocean under the full moon. And it's just really powerful. Yes, I take pictures. Yes, I've guided ocean meditations online. But when you're actually out surfing in the ocean, swimming in the ocean, walking along a seashore, you have a much fuller experience. And I just really celebrate that. In the Grand Canyon in the USA, very um, powerful place, sacred to indigenous peoples from the past continuing to be. And now it's become really beloved by many humans, many places. Yeah, that's in my bucket list. <laughs> Carla, Carla is also saying uh, people make tech, we don't make trees. Natural things still have their own self-spirit coming rather than rather than being construct, which are uh, all just parts of our human uh, ego. Uh, that's interesting. I think that I'm philosophically fascinated with this idea of the distinction between the natural and the artificial, because one could argue that everything is natural, even things that are man-made, but uh, there is still a perception, the perception of a difference between the two, like, for instance, Carl was explaining. Yes, and the word kami was just mentioned in that comment, and as part of my international interreligious work, and I started that years ago as well, I've been part of something called the Parliament of the World's Religions. It started in 1893 in Chicago, Illinois, in the central part of the USA. And back in 1893, it was considered a really pioneering event because it brought together not only Abrahamic religion, practitioners, but people from many different paths and people from religious forms rooted in Asia. Well, in 1993, there was a centennial rebirth. I was among the pagans that took part in that centennial rebirth and spoke at the Parliament of the World's Religions back then and had been part of the Parliament ever since. And through my work with the Parliament, I've had the real privilege and honor of being able, often with interpreters, to be able to have direct conversations with nature religion practitioners from different traditions from around the world. And I know that word kami I first encountered as I met a hereditary Shinto priest. Mm -hmm. And we 
found so much in common with my practice of contemporary paganism and his ancestral practice of the Shinto religion. There is just many, many um, parallels with that. When I was in South Africa, the 1999 Parliament of the World's Religions was held in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And I was one of a half a dozen or so scholars and practitioners and speakers at that conference that was selected to be part of an international interfaith roundtable. A scholar who has now crossed over into the other world, Hans Kuhn, well known for his interreligious work, called this a roundtable together and he was doing it for German television. And there I had the opportunity to represent contemporary paganism. And also I was one of the few women that was part of the round table. The other um, woman was a member of the South African parliament and someone who was a priestess of the Zulu religion. So we had a chance to, and she spoke really good English, which was great. And we had a chance during our breaks, during this day long session to really talk about our different experiences. And here again, um, the working with directions, the working with spirit of place, the working with ancestors to, and going out into natural areas as a way of not only spiritually nurturing ourselves, but helping us learn and grow. Those were some things we found we had in common. When I was at the parliament in 2018 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, I had the opportunity and here an interpreter was needed to talk with one of the, some people would call them shamanic practitioners, but someone from the Amazon who was there to speak about the need to stop the destruction of the rainforest in the Amazon. And as someone who has been a champion of forests, not only the oak forests where I live, um, but forests around the world, being able to talk to someone who is the defender of the Amazon rainforest and have a conversation was really powerful. And something that we both shared was our way of having relationship with the trees in the forest where we make our home. So I have found that contemporary paganism has much in common with a wide variety of nature religions around the world. I often use the term nature spirituality over the last decade. I've been using that term more as people have been practicing their own spiritual paths of paganism, connecting with ancestral traditions or traditions that are connected with a particular area of the country or place on the planet where they're at. And I find it's a, it's a more useful umbrella term. Some people don't want to be labeled. Some people say my church is in the woods or my church is nature. Um, some people 
want to embrace terminology that doesn't automatically require a download of definition. The word pagan, which I capitalize and really hope that it becomes widespread a practice to capitalize that. In oh, thank you for well thank you for saying that because we were having a discussion exactly about capitalization of paganism the other day. So I've been <laughs> I working on it for thirty five years, <laughs> and I realized that not all the style manuals in English in the USA are doing that, but increasingly journalists are starting to capitalize pagan. If you're going to capitalize Buddhist, why not capitalize pagan? I mean, <laughs> we deserve equal treatment. And part of my interfaith work has really been rooted in building bridges of understanding amongst people of different backgrounds. But part of it also is a proactive way of trying to build some better understanding about contemporary nature religion. I do not claim to speak for all nature religion practitioners, all pagans, all Wiccans, Druids, heathens, whatever. I do not. I am a voice. But one of the things that I think is really important is that we find ways to listen and to share our perspectives across cultural, national, lingual, faith tradition lines. And I really think greater understanding, hopefully will build um, some understanding for common ground where we can work together to um, be part of the solution and not the pollution here on planet Earth. <laughs> I like your sayings, you know. <laughs> Get off the screen, go into the green, and now be part of the solution, not the pollution. <laughs> well, I was, I've been an environmental activist pretty much my whole life. I can I tell. I was one of the, the many people that helped birth Earth Day in the USA back in 1970, April 22nd, 1970. I was one of those. I was at my undergraduate campus, College of William and Mary at Williamsburg, Virginia, USA. And I felt it was essential that we have an Earth Day event on campus. And what we chose as our focus for our teaching, as they were called back then, uh, basically getting people together to share ideas and information about aspects of the environment we focused on the health of a very large body of water called the Chesapeake Bay, which is right off the Atlantic. And we were in a part of Virginia called Tidewater, Virginia. And the pollution in the Chesapeake was really horrible back in 1970. And that wasn't the only place with polluted water in the U.S. and other parts of the world. And actually in the decade that followed that very first Earth Day, all sorts of federal legislation was passed in the USA for a Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and a, um, the Environmental Protection Agency was developed. So we shared ways of, um, the we shared the science of what was going on with pollution with the Chesapeake Bay, and then we, did a call for action. And I'm happy to say as a result of that first Earth Day back in 1970, not only were 
people on campus, but in the community and other parts of the Tidewater area coming together to really take a look at the problem, but taking action to clean up the bay. And really much has been done, more needs to be done, but the Chesapeake Bay has um, gotten healthier. And it, it came from calls to action from many different places, not just Earth Day, but scientists had been concerned about that. But I really think environmental events, especially the climate strike that happened back in 2019, right before the pandemic, really boosting the signal about the need to really pay attention to our environment not consider ourselves on some, I know Shakespeare said, all the world's the stage, but nature isn't a backdrop. It's part of us, we're part of nature. And when we talk about the environment part of nature, the ecosystems, the plants, the, the uh, creatures that are all around us, we need to pay attention what's happening with them. Water quality has been a topic that has been not only researched in a variety of ways, not only the quality of water, but who has access to water. And back in 2004, when I was at the Parliament of the World's Religions in uh, Barcelona, Spain, right before the main parliament, there was an assembly of religious and spiritual leaders. I'm very thankful to been one of those who were invited to take part in a religious leaders conference at Montserrat, which is a Roman Catholic monastery and a place for um, the dark Madonna. Yes, I got to see, go into the monastery and actually see a black Madonna who many people say really is rooted in Mother Earth. That's a whole nother, um, <laughs> a whole nother topic. But essentially it was uh, one of the things we shared and talked about People compared notes about water quality and water access. I talked with people who had to walk miles with their water containers to get water for the day. And we really need to take a look at what major corporations are doing with water access and how they're treating the waters of our land. In addition to working with the parliament, I've been involved in a number of other special environmental endeavors. The water walks that have happened in the past, and this was about, I think it was 2012, there was a water walk and the Ashinaabe people were organizing this and Ashinaabe, some people know them as Ojibwe, are in Canada as well as in the United States. And one of the grandmothers, who has been part of the water walks um, came to Madison, Wisconsin. And we had an interreligious gathering uh, at the start of the water walk. I was honored to be amongst the people who religious leaders that came and um, spoke at that interreligious service. And one of the things we were endeavoring to do was raise consciousness about water quality and water access and water protection. So that was an example of how activism, eco-activism and spirituality in an interreligious way 
came together. I really think we need to speed up our attention and our action. I still think we can make a difference and mitigate climate change, but so often other things grab the the headlines and the attention, not only in media, mass media, public media, but social media. So one of the things I've been involved with over the last few years is an international interreligious um, environmental endeavor called Green Faith. I think Circle Sanctuary may still be the only pagan spiritual community that's part of this international interreligious um, network, but we are not only sharing information, but doing actions together. It, it gives me hope as well as enthusiasm to know their ways to connect with people who may believe quite differently than us, different theologies, different ways of being, and people from different parts of the world. I think it's essential that nature religion practitioners make themselves more visible in our quest to combat climate change and have a healthier planet. Thank you, Selena. And uh, thank you, Win5, for the, super, for the super sticker. And Hank is asking about the AI and in your, in your view, AI hardware is part of nature. To move the human consciousness into the AI realm to live forever, would not this be an egocentric act? Uh, as opposed to a unifying one? I think a lot depends on who's organizing it and what the purpose is. And I'm continuing to educate myself about AI, including ways of being able to upend it. <laughs> because... Um, so what? Sorry. Think... <laughs> Do you not like what I mean by upend it is uh, in the States, if you are um, attempting to communicate with a major corporation, I tried to do this earlier today because there's going to be an action um, for a bank that is contributing way too much money to the fossil fuel industry. So on the 16th, the Bank of America is going to get some corrective feedback for a lot from a lot of people from a lot of faith traditions and political backgrounds from around the world about their emboldening of the fossil fuel industry. So I attempted to call the customer service line this morning to give some corrective feedback early and whether you call it a bot or in however you define the AI, but essentially they have it all automated. And I attempted to go into a deeper dive and actually talk to a live human. Have not yet beat that system yet. I may have to give them some kind of a number, identifying number or whatever. But um, yes, I whenever I'm booking an airline ticket, I have to find a way beyond the automatic artificial intelligence that's been programmed to just have a robot answer your questions instead of talking to a live human. Um, what I've used is the word agent 
And I just keep chanting it until they finally give up and let me talk to a human. <laughs> Is that really AI? I don't know, but it's connected with that dimension. I don't uh, think. What, what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think about the idea of transferring one's consciousness, for instance, to live forever well, and via technological means? Well, it's uh, it, humans are creating artificial intelligence. I don't think we should just write it off um, due to too many scary science fiction movies that one might have seen. I do think it can be a useful tool, but like with any tool, what is one's intention? Who's using it? Who's controlling it? I'd say one of the most um, complicated and problematic uses of AI has to do with how information is shared in social media and algorithms. And to actually give a boost to incorrect information, especially lies spread by politicians, is not helpful. Mm. So, yeah, I guess that I was wondering uh, in terms of somebody who's following a path of nature, spirituality, um, how to navigate, um, you know, what you call the, the digital age uh, in terms of, is it something that is in contrast with um, nature, spirituality, or is it something that uh, can be in line with it, can be worked with? And, um, I, I actually don't see a conflict you, per se with technology and the natural world. I'll just use that as, as that, that actually I think we need to find ways of using technology, including automatic translation devices on social media. I'm able to talk with people of other languages I have not studied by using a translation, um, clicking on translate when I'm posting something to Facebook. It's really uh, very helpful in that way. It can really help us. And I think in terms of um, having people be aware of ways of working with nature therapeutically, there's ways of teaching that on a screen. Um, I like taking some nature videos and sharing that on social media. I don't, for myself, I don't see a huge conflict between the technology that humans are developing and working with, as well as the natural world. For me, um, the technology is a tool, but just like anything else, and also coming from the ancient Greek pagans, all things in balance, know thyself and things in moderation were some adages that come to us from the ancient Greeks. And I think that technology can be helpful. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to have a conversation with you and to be there with everybody else that's happening to tune in live as a result of technology. Yes. And I will take my, I'll take my camera and I'll take my phone and some other things out into the green with me. And I will do, at times, I will video nature rituals that I'm doing. I will do some teaching and then I'll share that. But if we're just staying by a screen and not allowing ourselves to also 
develop a direct relationship with the natural world, we're missing some opportunities to grow in our understanding, not only within our own consciousness of what it's like to be human here, but to really connect with that wider world that we are all part of. Mm. As uh, as a last question, I, I'd like to ask you, um, I, I know that you are an environmentalist. It was very clear from this conversation. And I was wondering in what ways, if any, you know, uh, environmentalism helps the path of somebody who is um, on a path of nature, spirituality or uh, paganism? I mean, in what ways really, being environmentalist helps with the spiritual path? I really think when you are increasing your awareness of nature rhythms, of different dimensions of the natural world, when you're developing relationships with, for example, the oaks out here, being able to watch their lifespan, um, not the whole lifespan, a lot of them live much longer than humans, but to recognize from a small acorn, a mighty oak grows. Yes, you can talk about oak spirits and you might work with that as part of your paganism. But if you are also developing a relationship, not only with individual oak trees, but with the species, if you are working to improve the health, to bring about reforestation, to counter the deforestation, I actually think it all works together. Now, I know in environmental circles, I have gone and spoken at a variety of environmental conferences, and often I'm in, um, encountering people who would consider themselves not religious, not spiritual, they would call themselves secular, maybe secular humanist, uh, maybe atheist or agnostic or free thinker, and really have no, um, no room within their own worldview to do anything so-called spiritual. Well, whenever I'm um, speaking in an environment, I try to share from my own perspectives in ways that people, regardless of whether they're religious, spiritual, or secular, um, that they can connect with the environment in a meaningful way. So when I'm guiding a ceremonial experience, I may use some additional verbiage. If I'm in an all-pagan circle where people are pagan spiritual or pagan religious, okay, we're connecting with the spirits of this forest. If I'm with a bunch of scientists that that isn't their worldview, or very few of them have that, I'll say, let us experience this ecosystem with all of our senses. Now, that may really take a different form, but I do think that observation is so key to science. And when I got my undergraduate um, degree. It was a Bachelor of Science, not a Bachelor of Arts. I love science. I think it's really important to develop scientific thinking, critical thinking, being able to develop a hypothesis, a theory, 
collect data, analyze the data, get rid of the theory if the data is not working or do some additional studies. I don't see a big conflict within my own consciousness between science and religion or science and mysticism. I think that many people have mystical experiences, but not a framework in which to really understand or work with them. And I find when I am helping people who have a loved one dying or I'm with the person themselves who are dying, one of the most important things I endeavor to find out is what is their framework? If they are connected with a particular religion, what is that religion? If they have a spiritual philosophy rather than consider themselves, you know, religious identified, okay, what is that? And if they have absolutely no time of day for religion or spirituality that they they really don't see a hereafter or whatever, well, to be with them in that reality as well. And for myself, whether it's counseling or helping a person at their end of life, I do think listening and connecting and being able to creatively develop languaging around helping whoever is going through a process, going through that process. And I like to envision a time where we can find even more ways of being able to connect with each other. And I, I really think it's important for us to not only get our information from sources that we agree with, but to also be aware of the range of attitudes and perspectives that exist so that we can adapt, especially those of us who are activists, we can adapt our actions accordingly. So going back to your question about, okay, well, if you're an environmentalist, how can that help nature spirituality practices? I actually think that in addition to learning about a mint plant and connecting with its essence and what you might use it for as part of a pagan practice, um, whether it is drying the mint and sprinkling it around your house to bless it, or taking a fresh sprig and putting it in a cup of water and asperging to bless your home. If you can develop a relationship with the species as a whole and plants in particular, it can help you with your gardening. And as someone who's very much involved in the environmental activism realm, knowing the name of the plant, what research has been done, and most importantly, if you're going to consume a plant internally or work with it in some way, it's going to be interacting with your body. Well, check the data. <laughs> and with herbology, more people are now sharing their experiences and not only um, their own folk wisdom, but more people are actually looking at the science around plants, what helps them grow, what sustains them. If you are going to be 
preparing something with that plant? Do you boil it or do you steep it? When do you harvest it? Is it when it comes into flower? Or do you get the leaves before it blooms? Or if it's a root, well, chances are you're going to get that root at night or in the autumn when the plant is storing its energy there. So I think nature spirituality practitioners would do well to understand the science as well as the magic connected with different aspects of the natural world. And I think that we all need as part of our communion with nature to not only tune in, but to listen what is happening to the environment and listen for messages about what we can do to bring about a healthier relationship with humans in the natural world and a healthier planet. And um, here we have a question. Can uh, I ask, uh, are we interacting with the individual plant or the spirit of the species? By the way, Lindsay, please repost your question because I, I, I looked through the chat and I couldn't find it, but I know that you, you've been trying to, to ask something. So uh, what about this? Yeah, thank question? you. Thank you for that question. I do both. If I'm going to go harvest some plants, we have something called um, wild bee balm, um, which is Monarda fistulosa, for those of you who want the scientific name. And I, before I do a harvest, I will go to a patch of the wild bee balm and I will honor the plant species as a whole and will pause and invite it to give guidance to me in my harvest, how much to take, where to take. And then as I start working with the individual plants, I don't just randomly start cutting, I really attempt to be sensitive to the individual plants and as part of wildcrafting, as well as horticultural work, it's really important to recognize you are receiving a gift when you're harvesting, to not only attune as you begin, and in some traditions, a kind of asking permission or asking help as part of that process, and when you're done, giving thanks to the plant. You're going to find that kind of tradition of honoring plants connected with the harvest um, and giving thanks at the end. You're going to find that across a variety of different nature-centered paths. And I think it's important to develop our relationship with the spirit of the whole species, as well as to recognize we're actually working with individual plants as well. So good question. <laughs> yes. And that works uh, with creatures too. I've had, I don't have any cats in my life at present, but I have kept an altar to bust ever since I was in that, the high priestess of that ceremonial magical lodge back in the 19, early 1970s. 
And I not only honor Bost as a form of the divine and work with her in connection with cats that have been in my life or the people who have cats have particular needs. Um, but to me, it's a way of connecting with the spirit of the cat is to actually work with a deity that um, has direct access to that. Yeah, that's a good point. Lindsay wanted to say AI is divination without moral reasoning. Uh, it's a brilliant dice rules deciding which path through a maze to take. That's a really um, good way of characterizing it. I am seeing that people are using AI in a variety of ways. There is a big debate in the art world right now about AI-created art. Is that art or isn't it? And as somebody who actually made my living as an artist early on before I gave up art and photography as my main career path and went into being a priestess this lifetime around, uh, I do think there is a lot to really think about, to explore regarding AU, AI and how we're using it. And I, I am fascinated by how AI is being used in the arts world. But as somebody who supports bards and artists, I really hope that we continue to have humans creating art and not evolve the art world into something that's AI only, or it dominates our our commercial art world in particular. Mm. <laughs> I know some of the Hollywood movie posters now are all being generated by AI, um, but they're, they're holdouts. And I'd like to see a balance with those who are artists that are creating the images from within their own processes. And yes, have some AI art, but it shouldn't be taking over the whole world. We, there's something really magical about the creative process and what happens as we give birth, whether it's to a painting or a song or a dance or a theater performance or an essay or a novel. I really celebrate creativity and AI should be a tool and not take over. Well, maybe the key is um, precisely what you said. It's not really about the final object, it's about the process. And that's something that you cannot... <laughs> I'm personally a, a fan of technology and the new advancements in technology. Uh, I So I always tend to think of things as tools and not as threats, to be fair. Um, so I don't think that art made by human is ever going to disappear. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think so. And one of the many reasons is that, as you said, it's not just about getting a picture or a portrait. It's also about the process. So um, the process well, you know, and you the had... process that the artist goes through. You asked me early on, you know, how has paganism changed over time? Um, when I first started practicing paganism as a, as a young girl, I didn't have the name for it then. Um, it was actually 
as a result of my work in classics. I was president of the Classics Honor Society, Eta Sigma Phi on campus, and I started the Classics Club. So those people whose grade point average wasn't so good um, could also enjoy the classics. So as president of a, both organizations, I went to the faculty and said, we need to experience the classics and did my very first public pagan ritual as part of academia. This was to be an exploration of welcoming in the spring. So I got the whole faculty of the classics department, some grad students, some undergraduates who were part of the groups, and we went out into an area of the campus called the Sunken Garden and did a rite of spring. Hmm. Yo, hey, well, people use that in connection with the rites of Dionysus. We used it in that rite, called on Dionysus, called on Mother Earth, have not been the same since. What was once an academic exercise to really help people get a fuller understanding of ancient Greek and ancient Roman society actually set me on the priestess path. So I would say, if you're going to be working with some ancient sacred names, be prepared and going to invoke them, be prepared. <laughs> they may come up and show up. Back then, paganism was springing up in many different ways, but we didn't have the kind of connectivity back then. And paganism in the US in particular, it wasn't safe to be out as a pagan in many places. When I founded Circle in 1974, only a few years after that experience, I thought it was really important to have a way that people could create community together. And in 1978, took the next step, which is to actually incorporate our community, our organization as a nonprofit religious institution. So we became one of the first pagan churches legally established in the USA. And back in, oh, now it's been almost 16 years, we actually were able to win some victories for pagan rights in the USA, actually to get this pinnacle added to um, a government list so that it could be included on grave markers for pagans who um, had served in the US military and who had died. Yes, it took 10 years and several lawsuits and a lot of trips to Washington um, to accomplish this. But I, I did not plan to really start a pagan church as part of this lifetime, but it is really important that not only paganism as a whole and all of its diversity, but nature religions, that we have the same rights, that we have religious freedom in whatever country we're in, the right to have couples be married in legal ceremonies and the right to be able to practice our religion without being killed, harassed, harmed in some way. 
I'm the executive director of Lady Liberty League and within Circle Sanctuary, that is one of our services. We also do podcasting work and have Circle Sanctuary Network podcasts. So those of you who are interested in interviews, workshops, rituals, discussions, you can check us out at the Circle Sanctuary website. And should you have a religious freedom issue, if you're pagan, you're being discriminated against, if you're being harassed, we can't promise we're going to solve that for you. But if you want to contact us, LLL at circlesanctuary.org. And we have a network of people that attempt to um, bring about help for those in need and to work for a world with freedom, liberty, and justice for all. So hail Libertas, the ancient Roman goddess of freedom, also depicted in the US most often as Lady Liberty. So may we have freedom to be ourselves, to practice our religion, and to work for a world where people can practice openly if they choose to do so. I really appreciate your work, Angela. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. I'm so excited about this contribution to pagan studies. My husband, Dr. Dennis, Carpenter and I, along with several other people back in 1995, hatched what is what was then called Nature Religion Scholars Network with the American Academy of Religion. Neither one of us were religious studies um, majors or professionals in terms of academia. We were both from psychology realms, but I'm happy to report that that is a thriving part of the American Academy of Religion for religious studies people. And I really do think that we need to come up with ways to connect those who, of us who feel we can be open about our paganism and work together with others to dispel the misinformation and the discrimination and have a world where there hopefully is more kindness and understanding and collaboration. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to end our conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's it was it was lovely uh, to have this conversation with you, Serena. Thank you so much for uh, for coming over to Angela's symposium and uh, yeah it's you know for everybody who is interested in Serena's work uh, please check out the info box because there are all the the links and the contact details so that you can reach out to her or follow her on social media best wishes in all your work I'm so glad to connect with you and learn about mm -hmm. your endeavors and may pagan studies as an academic discipline continue to grow, evolve, and thrive. Yeah, it's not it's not easy to be in pagan studies. <laughs> so I obviously <laughs> really appreciate all the work that you've done in paganism and for paganism. Um, and, you know, in my case, as an academic, obviously, it's really difficult to be uh, a pagan studies scholar and um, academics that are in this field know, how, you know, how much of a struggle it is. And one of the reasons why I opened this YouTube channel and my social media platforms was to let people know that paganism and 
other magic practicing traditions are studied from an academic point of view because a lot of people had no idea that this was the case. So I'm trying to disseminate the work of pagan studies scholars so that the field can grow. Uh, and because otherwise, you know, with the um, situation that we have going on where religious studies department gets shut down, paganism is not <laughs> um, a priority, let's put it that way. Uh, so I'm trying to give voice to pagan studies scholars that have done a lot of important work in the field. And I'm hoping to give, uh, you know, my contribution to, to see it grow and see it being acknowledged in the, in the public sphere. Well, I was, I guess, a happy story to tell you because I was in a session with some pagan studies scholars recently who talked about job description. And this was an international um, private Zoom um, job discrimination going on within academia. And I had been part of World Interfaith Harmony Week, that's United Nations Endeavor, but different organizations, um, institutions all around the world have events as part of that, it's February 1st through 7th every year. And so we always, I always do some kind of workshop at our Imolk Festival and have that as part of our um, World Interfaith Harmony Week participation. I'm happy to report that once again, I was at a college as a pagan minister um, taking part in interreligious international dialogue um, as somebody who is pagan and the campus chaplain convened us again. Um, most people were in person at the college, but two of us were on Zoom, um, African um, Muslim from the Middle East in Saudi Arabia and me <laughs> from my Oak Forest home in Wisconsin, or that we sometimes jokingly call Wisconsin, USA. So it's, it's good that more people are finding ways to be present. And I do think if anyone is able um, to come to Chicago in August and be part of the Parliament of the World's Religions, regardless of what your personal religious orientation is, if you'd like to really have a sense of the diversity of spirituality, religion, and philosophy in the world today, it'd be a great place to be together. One thing that people have in common that take part in the Parliament is to be able to really join together to build understanding. And we do that with our Pagan Spirit Gathering, which happens summer solstice week every June 18th through 25th. So those who want more information about that, it's um, you don't have to be pagan to be part of it, but you definitely have to be pagan friendly. And we bring together pagans from many paths, not only for celebrating summer solstice, but we do some leadership training and a variety of concerts and celebrations. Thank you so much, Angela, for your work <laughs> and for bringing this out into the realm of cyberspace. It's a wonderful yes. way to connect. <laughs> I say connect in cyberspace, face-to-face -face, and inner space. And yes, capitalize pagan. <laughs>
Yes, I will. I will take a note of that. Well, I'm in total agreement with that. It's just, that, um, yeah, it was a, discu a discussion, um, you know, for the book. But uh, <laughs> I agree with you. And um, wow. yeah, so thank you so much for being here and accepting my invitation. And I really encourage everybody in the chat who, who or who is gonna watch the the video afterwards to to check you out on social media. And I really thank you for all the work that you've done uh, for paganism and within paganism. <laughs> well, until we meet again, um, be well and bright blessings. <laughs> Thank you. So thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Uh, please check out the info box for uh, Selena's contact details. And uh, you will also find all the ways to support this project. And if you're watching this now or later, don't forget to smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, activate the notification bell, and obviously share this video with all of your friends, like all of them, <laughs> and subscribe to be a symposium. Until next time, stay tuned for all the academic fun. <laughs>